Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. 37th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is a delicious one. It's our love and hate of sacred monsters. I'm joined by Charlotte Fox Weber. She is the author of Tell Me What You Want, A Therapist and Her Clients Explore Our 12 Deepest Desires. The publisher is Atria Books. Charlotte is a psychotherapist and writer. She co-founded Examined Life and was the founding head of the School of Life Psychotherapy. She grew up in Connecticut, Paris, and now lives in London with her husband and two young children. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure this will be fascinating. Um, so let's let's maybe give the obligatory summary of the book to get us going. Okay, so my book is about the conflict of desire and how we often struggle to identify what it is we really want. And we, we work against ourselves in various ways. But we also, we also play emotional versions of hide and seek where we, we can run away from what it is we really want and then hope that somehow we'll get it. And then life disappoints and frustrates and very often... Therapy is a space for discovering something surprising and and strange about a part of yourself, a kind of deception. And it will turn out to be the discovery of a longing. And I think desire really wakes us up to a sense of possibility and forward motion. But it's often incredibly disturbing to us as well to, to feel desire strongly. Oh, I think what you've already said is fascinating. I love the reference to hide and seek. I can't tell you how many times I wish I could uh, talk my my friends, my fellow adults, into playing childlike games like that once again because oh, I found them so enjoyable. I, but also, it's so straightforward when you're playing the game with a child and you know the rules, and I, there's joy in the discovery of the hiding space. And I I think if adults could kind of admit that they're playing emotional versions we could we could understand ourselves with more ease 
Oh, absolutely. So uh, speaking of understanding things, um, I don't normally draw on the, the uh, what I'll call the PR package that comes with a book. But in this case, um, something caught my eye there. It said the book is The New Five Love Languages. And I went, hmm, I don't remember her talking about the five love languages in the book. So I better ask her what that is to make sure I'm not leaving something essential out of the picture. I mean, I, I don't talk about the five love languages in the book myself, but I... I identify the core longings that I think we all have at different moments in our lives. And I'm not trying to expound and say that it's only these universal desires and that's it. But I think that having a framework is, is a helpful kind of launching point for discussing desire because we often don't know where to begin. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know what comes up for you when, when you hear the word desire it often gets eroticized and associated with a kind of pressure to know what you want or to hide what you want, whatever it is. Like, like we can we can be vague and not know how to begin a conversation about it. Yeah, no, well, in your book, I mean, you got, after all, 12 uh, case studies, and about half of them involve sex or procreation pretty directly. <laughs> but then again, the others don't. I mean, because there's a lot of other ways in which desires come into play. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the, the PR material also said the new generation of therapy. So I also thought I should maybe open by framing things around that. If there's something significant, we should be drawing into the conversation here. Yes. I mean, I think, I think that therapy does well when it's a little bit startling and provocative. And that does not mean being wildly unboundaried or unprofessional, but it, it does mean kind of, agitating slightly, like being a little bit restless with the process as a therapist. I think therapy can be too, too slow going and it's actually helpful to kind of get a move on and sometimes say the difficult thing as a therapist to, to a client, even if it's not comfortable to hear. I think no, I, I, yeah, no, I, I like that getting a move on. I mean, I'm a, uh, a poet by background and for a number of years, and you know, Emily Dickinson, for instance, or William Blake. There's there's poets who just deliver a lot, and they can do it rather quickly, and it's uh, it's utterly startling what they're unpacking for you. And um, um, I, I like that pace. That that works for me. Hopefully, it works for your clients. Well, I mean, and also sometimes just being being bold and and saying the thing that cannot be said easily anywhere else. And there yeah. is something about the emotional kind of lack of censorship in therapy that I think can be invigorating and creative. Sure. So um, speaking of um, that kind of innovative spirit that I'm, I'm catching wind of here. Um, so you have your own glossary of terms in the back of the book that, that intrigued me. I had once uh, crowdsourced a book mocking a uh, business lexicon Right. Uh, called blah blah blah, and I love Flaubert's uh, dictionary, making fun of the bourgeoisie. And of course, there's Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary, which is uh, one of my all time favorite books. Um, so, what's a what's a favorite term for you from your own glossary? Oh, I think superiority is probably. Oh my, my... god, that's the one. That's the one I would have chosen as my favorite. <laughs> Is that I like that. I mean, I just live and breathe it every day and I needed to to find a term in a grandiose and insecure way. Just the whole process of even coming up with the word 
with a friend of mine. I to describe that incredibly uneasy constant tension between a kind of big self-belief and a staggering self-doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Is that relatable? Um, that that's so good. Uh, sorry, I just that's just amazing way to and, put it. I mean, I think I think there's something about ego that that we really struggle to admit to. Like, where where are the people who are going to actually just be honest about the fact that, of course, they have ego injuries and and raging ego issues? I I feel like it should be talked about more. Well, if, is is that is that one way of us getting into the question of sacred monsters? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, good link. Yeah. So you 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 offered that as the title for the episode, and I want to make sure we don't fail to get there in our in our limited time. So, talk to me about the importance of sacred monsters and what constitutes. Uh, you, you can take the question any place you want. Examples of it by yeah. individuals or certain characteristics you've seen patterns. I, I don't care. You so you, you I, run with it. I, I talk about sacred monsters in, in this book, and it's actually the name of the book I'm writing now. And it was very much the kind of backdrop while I was writing, tell me what you want. And it's it's really our enthrallment with the wrong people, with the dangerous people, with the kind of taboo attachment. And I think that we we are incredibly conflicted at different moments in life about uh, wanting what we're not supposed to want. And then we have a way of holding on to the kind of bad person or the, the wrong person or the, the love story that went wrong. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. I'm, it's, it's really about our own kind of disavowed shadow side, but also I, our, our discomfort, but intrigue about danger and self-destruction and, and death and darkness. And I think I really like the dark side. I really think that it's kind of rich and worthwhile to just go to the doom and the despair and give up hope about certain things. And, and whatever the kind of inappropriate feeling might be, whatever the transgressive desire might be i just to kind of start with the wrong list and go from there sure well just just last night on pbs here in the states i was watching a very peculiar hour uh dylan program and i'm pretty sure he called it the shadow kingdom where Love he it. was taking 14 of his songs and kind of reinterpreting them as is his want so getting to your book um speaking of this kind of desire for darkness that we don't always acknowledge in ourselves uh, makes me think of the penultimate chapter of the book where you have a woman named Alice who was for a long time involved with a uh, abusive French film director, a guy named yes. Rafa. Um, she says, you know, I, I find uh, basically darkness more authentic, more real than, you know, goodness. Um, it, it does or more help. for her. Yeah. Well, and she is someone who has made all of the right decisions uh, technically, behaviorally. And she's she's made the sensible, healthy, secure, safe choices. And health is incredibly boring at moments. And I think there can be a kind of wish for for healing and reparation and flourishing. And then and then there can also be a, a real grief for 
the pain that you don't have or the kind of the torture, like there can be this, this sense of boredom that is almost worse than actually suffering. Yeah, well, I guess my, my favorite Beatle was always John Lennon. He's the one who said one thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. And, uh, you know, I don't love every John Lennon song on the same level, but I, I'm not bored by pretty much any of them. Um, right. there's, just, there's always some friction going on in him that's just uh, a little bit stronger than in, in the other Beatles, shall we say. At least, to my, at least to my taste. Right. So, um, so we, we both love superiority. I find that interesting. Um, the, the 12 case studies, was there a particular meaning to the order in which they're presented? I was trying to deduce one and wasn't sure. I, I actually just wanted to offer a range of dynamic, vibrant stories about different people from different walks of life and the kind of recurring themes that come up and, there are certain struggles that play out in so many different cultures and circumstances, like the desire for attention and the shame we feel for being straightforward about that. I mean, adults do not like to admit that they want attention, but everyone wants attention, even if we also push it away and feel embarrassed by it. And yeah, I, I, think, no, I, I would, I would agree. I mean, I, um, many years ago, I remember I was reading in a, article and it was about um you know people who have avoidant tendencies and it was describing that uh, as a child you want your mom to run after you even if you're running away and come fetch you and bring you yeah. back and hug you and uh you know my mom admitted to me that she'd, she'd rather clean the, the house <laughs> than right. play with her kids and uh, so if i got that longing in me someplace it's probably because it didn't quite get satisfied that's very honest and and not totally comfortable i imagine no, no, it's not. But um, it is what it is, and I'm, I'm prepared to um, accept it for its its reality. Yeah, um, but I I think you're brave to say it, and also, I mean, those those agonies have fascinating ways of then just creeping up and playing out in different iterations. I don't know if you've reenacted the dynamic as many times as I have with my <laughs> with my patterns, but like the the source of hurt can just play out in in so many different versions of relationships. Oh, absolutely. No, I think it's the it's the the patterns and even when you're conscious of them, the the, the grip they can have on you. Uh, yeah. because you, you have these moments of truth or, or moments of possibility and sometimes you seize them or you don't or you half seize them or they slip out of your hands and uh, then I go back and I try to understand why. <laughs> right. And I think that's where the sacred monster comes in because I, there is something utterly worthwhile and meaningful feeling about that, that core conflict. We don't really want to give up the conflict. And I think, I think conflict is something worth embracing and, and not kind of not being afraid of because conflict is the point of any plot, any, any story. And I think that, that tension becomes the kind of unofficial plot of our lives where we are working out some wound and thinking we can fix it and get it right in some different, in some different format. And it's kind of the battle that we keep on fighting. 
Yeah, no, that's basically where you find the pulse of life. I mean, what's the famous comment from uh, the Orson Welles script for Third Man, the movie set in Vienna? You know, the the uh, Italians have had all this conflict and great art, and the the uh, I mean, he's being facetious, and the, the Swiss have have had oh, uh, I, calm and neutrality, and and all it's given them is a cuckoo clock. It is synchronicity that you're saying that because I actually had that exact conversation earlier today. I... <laughs> <laughs> Well, between superiority yeah. and then Orson Welles and Cuckoo Clocks, um, maybe maybe we're going to have to meet off air at some point in London. Who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, and also you seem you seem less surprised by the idea that we all have sacred monsters than than some people. Where I, I mean, I'm often asked as a therapist, like, why do I keep picking the wrong person? Why do I go for such jerks? Like, what? Why do I only want the person who rejects me and deprives me? You seem you seem accepting of our our wish for struggle. Yeah, no, I I just think it's very real and um, too often unacknowledged and uh, avoided to the extent that people can get away with it. Uh, and of the, yeah, of the twelve uh, twelve case studies, is there one that you particularly want to talk about? Because I got about five minutes left, and I want to make sure I don't deprive you of that opportunity. Well, so I I would like to talk about wanting what we shouldn't. That actually okay. we like transgressing and we like negotiating the rules around what we're supposed to want. We want to be good. We also want to be not good. We are kind of always looking at these different conflicts unofficially in ourselves and in other people. And I think, I think that we get drawn into the half good, half bad friend or boss or whatever, whatever the relationship is in your life. But we, we like being torn about whether we can get through to people, change people, and sort out this dilemma. And actually, I I don't think that the contradictions need to be fixed or can be fixed. And I think I, one of the messages that sounds incredibly bleak but is actually consoling is that I, it's great to give up hope and to kind of recognize that you cannot have something that you want. Uh, somehow, suddenly, Gertrude Stein's coming to my mind because of her quote, there is no answer, there's never going to be an answer, that's the answer. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and toxic positivity. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, so I, I'm interested, you know, because you, you admit that as a therapist, you know, you kind of uh, want the, the, the kettle to boil a little bit and, and move things along and dare to be bold and Yet I can imagine in a lot of cases, you, you know, that can be shocking to uh, a client who comes wanting to be healed or improved or help make progress, and yet they're also afraid of it. So there must be a lot of tension as to how you play your role at any given time as a therapist. I, I think it's really important to try to adjust to the kind of particulars of any individual and and people want to actually be recognized as idiosyncratic and remarkable anyway. And I think there is something about the therapeutic process that, that really honors that. So it's never one size fits all. And it's very annoying to people usually if they're told that it's just a kind of predictable pattern entirely in their textbook. But at the same time, I think, I think that disruption and Sometimes even a crisis it can be a catalyst for for making change. 
Oh, absolutely. I think that's how you handle those those moments of crisis is biggest chances for growth and um, probably the biggest, um, you know, test that you're going to go through and, how, you know, hopefully one doesn't flunk it. I mean, I, I've certainly faced my own crises and um, tried to learn from them and grow and take them on as best I could. So, But I think it's also about courage and kind of leaning into the challenge of it because it's very awkward and difficult to really be honest in a conversation and even in therapy like we we hide and seek and pretend and play games and it goes both ways and therapists hide too and actually kind of revealing what's really going on in the here and now on either side is so difficult and it's really it's really freeing and kind of exciting to do but, yeah, no, I, I've come back more and more in life into thinking about the importance of the the, the character or characteristic of, of having or displaying courage. Um, you know, there's those wonderful lyrics in The Wizard of Oz where the, the, the cowardly lion sings about uh, what puts the hot in hot and tot? Courage. It's, oh, um... I like it. <laughs> I like it. But it's also, I mean, I've just felt so... So kind of deceived by therapists myself, where I have sensed that they have, a, I mean, one in particular, I, I really felt her dislike of me. And maybe I felt my own dislike of her, but we never really got there. And I I actually think it would have been helpful if she could say something to me about what she felt. And she just wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't kind of admit that she struggled to work with me or found me difficult. I. I feel like we we hold back and then act out in different ways. So actually con- looking at our aggression is a big part of looking at what it is we seek. Well, yeah, then you'd be in the land of passive aggressiveness without acknowledging it, which means you'd be right home here in Minnesota where, we're, <laughs> where we've got Minnesota <laughs> nice syndrome. Yeah. So I got to ask you one more question before we get to the close here. So um, I had once for Cosmo magazine of all things, facially coded the Royal wedding of Harry and Meghan. And I know he was just in court recently trying to take on what he would consider very much not sacred monsters, which is the tabloid press in England. Right. So he he had his memoir not long ago. It's it's sold, you know, buckets loads. Um, Obviously there's a whole lot going on with Harry and uh, his family Uh, as a therapist. Any, any comments, observations, about the travails of travails of Harry. I I feel like poor Harry has just been he's just been eviscerated for emotional displays and it's it's quite savage and at the same time sure he he says too much he doesn't know how to not keep talking or not keep seeking so he he probably has too many different voices in his therapy chorus of people who help him and support him. And he is working on himself and he's just, it, he's so attacked. I, I find it very upsetting to witness the, the so, absolute so, lack of empathy for him and the, the energetic hatred of her. Yeah, no, I, I found it very displeasing as a facial coder. I could not fail to notice the disgust and contempt expressions of members of the Royal, maybe not the, you know, inner, royal family but certainly the larger entourage or social grouping 
And yes. uh, I've been horrified by what's going on. I, I find his, bro- his brother comparably boring. And I, I, do com- I do commend Harry for his uh, avid seeking, his hunger for getting to some better place. Um, I, I find it admirable, actually. Absolutely. I mean, Harry is the ram with horns and, and William is the, <laughs> the sheep who follows rules, even if he's at the top. He's, he's so obedient. Yeah, no, there's a lot of sheep involved there. Um, so we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I could have happily gone on for an hour, believe me. Um, so this has been uh, Charlotte Fox Weber. She is my guest on the 137th episode of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The topic today, our love and hate of sacred monsters. Uh, Charlotte's book is called Tell Me What You Want. A therapist and her clients explore our 12 deepest desires. If you've enjoyed today's show, of course, give it a rating or review on iTunes. Much appreciated. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram that I hope is appropriate. In this case, I couldn't resist taking one from Johnny Carson, of all people, who said, In Hollywood, if you don't have a shrink, people think you're crazy. Until next time, take care and be well. (laughs) 